Good day and welcome to Blueprint for Clean Energy, a webinar speaker series hosted by the Yale Center for Business and the Environment. My name is Olga Kachuk and I will be your host for today's webinar titled Accelerating Energy Storage Deployment. The Blueprint for Clean Energy webinar series invites leading practitioners and researchers in the field of clean energy to talk about the latest opportunities and developments in corporate, nonprofit, and public-private arenas. In today's webinar, we will explore the viability and challenges of energy storage in today's marketplace with our speakers, Paul Gardner and Mike Hopkins. Paul Gardner is the global segment leader of energy storage at DNVGL. His experience includes electrical systems, network connections, grid integration issues, and regulatory issues for variable renewables, principally wind and solar. Paul now coordinates DNVGL's global activities in energy storage, covering all energy storage technologies and taking into account competing or complementary technologies. Mike Hopkins is the CEO of Ice Energy, a clean energy storage for the electricity grid, with its Ice Bear system deployed in more than 40 utility service territories. Ice Energy recently signed a 25.6 megawatt contract with Southern California Edison, equivalent to providing the electricity needs of over 19,000 homes. Before we begin, we would like to remind our listeners that we welcome any questions you might have and we'll direct them to our speakers towards the ends of the talk. Please type questions directly into the GoToWebinar chat window throughout the presentation. And with that, I would like to welcome our speakers to Blueprint for Clean Energy. Paul, would you like to start us off? Yes, hello. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, where, where I am sitting in the UK. My name is Paul Gardner. As you've heard, I'm the global segment leader for energy storage within DNVGL. And this afternoon, I am talking to you uh, about some work we led for the World Energy Council. If we can move down the page, please. Hello, Olga, can we move down the page? Sure, just one second, Paul. We're working out a few technical issues on our end. Yeah. Oh, Paul, go ahead. You can actually uh, switch your slides yourself, yeah. I think. Yep, there you go. Okay. Perfect, thank, thank you. you. So, uh, the uh, report that I'm talking about today was uh, undertaken for the World Energy Council. World Energy Council is uh, an international organization um, which has corporate, non-corporate members and provides advice to, policy advice to governments. Uh, the report you see is on the right-hand side of that slide. We were lead authors uh, using our energy storage teams in the UK, the Netherlands and in the US. A large part of the work was economic analysis, which was led by PwC, uh, based in Germany. And the report itself had contributions and was reviewed extensively by several organi member organizations of World Energy Council. And you can find the report at this location. Um, I have to say that uh, what I'm reporting here is uh, our views, DNVGL's view in this report. Um, I don't expect that they differ very much from any of the other participants, but it is uh, our, our own views that I'm talking about here. So the report was looking at energy storage and in particular, what 
members of the World Energy Council were interested in was cost of storage and in particular how it interacts with the variable renewables, so wind and solar. And we need to first of all think about how we are measuring cost. So levelized cost of energy is a, a, a metric that's often used in the energy industry, particularly in the renewables, for several good reasons. First of all, for the renewables, the costs are largely capex and they are uh, largely well known at the start of the project. They don't, there's not much risk of costs changing greatly during the lifetime of the project. Also, the income is generally well known for wind and solar projects. It's well forecastable in advance. The price you get for the energy you produce is also, uh, in many cases, um, well fixed because it's through government support mechanisms, premium prices, or some other uh, contractual mechanism that is with a very solid counterparty, such as the government uh, or uh, large electricity purchase or utility. Also, the variable renewables, wind and solar, have near zero marginal cost. So that means that they are always going to be high in the mirror order. They are always going to be chosen to run first before others with, with higher marginal costs. And therefore, the, the capacity factor for uh, renewables projects is determined by the resource, by the sun or by the wind, rather than by market factors. So all of those mean that levelized cost of energy is something that you can calculate pretty well for renewables projects, and it's used almost universally. However, for energy storage, it's not so good because the income, uh, the total income, the, the, the volumes and the value of that income depend critically on how the energy storage device is used. So therefore, the, what we've called the application case, other people call the use case, is critical to understanding costs of storage. So as well as thinking about cost, which is of, uh, perhaps of secondary uh, importance, you need to think about value. And very often, for an energy storage device, you have to stack up several value streams in order to make a project work. And each of those value streams might have substantial uncertainty. And that, that adds to the difficulty of making a business case. So we need to talk about some metrics. Now, for many of you, this slide will be um, uh, revision. You will know it all, but I'm sure there will be some people on the call for whom it will be useful to go through some basics. So energy storage is sized by two independent factors, the power in kilowatts and megawatts, which is the instantaneous power output, and the energy capacity that the store can hold in kilowatt hours or megawatt hours. So that's two independent factors. You can divide one by the other, and if you do it the right way around, you get a useful number, which is the discharge time, which is in hours, or measured in time anyway, um, discharge time are often called the E2P ratio, the energy to power ratio. And this leads us to the concept of high power versus high energy energy storage applications. So if you look at the graph on the right hand side, we have here energy capacity along the x-axis going up to very large indeed, hundreds of terawatt hours. And on the y-axis we have the discharge time. So just to give an, an illustration, Look at the bubble called flywheels, 
you see that flywheels down towards the bottom left have relatively short discharge times. They can be discharged in times of around a minute or a few minutes. And that makes them high power devices. They're suitable for providing large amounts of energy for short periods. Uh, they're not suited for providing energy over long periods out towards, uh, up towards the top of the graph. A couple of other things that it's useful to see on this graph. First of all, there's quite a few technologies that are clustered around about one day discharge time, roughly. And that's because, uh, partly because um, use of energy storage to balance out the uh, daily variations in electricity demand is a good market for energy storage. So there's a natural clustering of technologies around about one day-ish. You'll see there's almost no technologies that, that lead to what we'd call seasonal uh, storage up towards you know, a month and a year. Um, one other thing to draw out this graph is the, um, if you look at the pumped hydro bubble, pumped hydro is the most uh, mature technology on this graph. Um, most, it's also the most widespread a very large fraction of the installed energy capacity in the world, uh, energy storage capacity in the world is pumped hydro. And yet you'll see it's quite a small bubble. You compare it with thermal energy storage, a very, a very much larger bubble. So why is that that the most mature technology occupies the smallest space? And this, this highlights one issue with this graph, this graph and others like it, there's many of them around uh, the common, common currency. This graph is showing two different things. For the mature technology, it's, it's showing where the technology has a niche application where it is economic. For the less developed technologies, it's showing what is technically feasible, not what's economically advantageous. So that's something to bear in mind when looking at these kind of graphs. Anyway, let's move on to second slide on metrics. And this is just to show some cost figures. Uh, there's a lot of hype around energy storage and a lot of it is due to fall in the cost of batteries and so I felt it was necessary to put up a graph that shows in fact this is happening. Uh, I'm afraid we've lost the uh, legend off the left hand side but the the, the y-axis is uh, US dollars per, per kilowatt hour. Um, now this uh, this shows a good downward trend both in domestic batteries, the orange one, domestic lithium-ion batteries, the orange one, and in electric vehicle batteries, which is the blue one. However, just a caveat, this is a, this graph has, is a logarithmic on both axes. And some of you will know if you, if you use logarithm, double logarithms, you can make almost any characteristic look approximately like a straight line. Uh, however, in this case, it does show uh, a, a trend that we can believe will continue. Third slide to look at is the metrics that we used in this study. We used two. First of all, specific investment cost. So this is just capex, normalized. You can normalize it either by the energy capacity in kilowatt hours or by nominal power in, in kilowatts. In this case, we used kilowatts, nominal power. So it ignores the operating costs, ignores the application cases. It is actually of limited use. The other one we use is levelized cost of energy or as we defined it, levelized cost of storage. Uh, very, very similar, but some, some methodological differences. So the levelized cost uses, uh, includes the capital cost, operating costs, and it also allows for the application characteristics. Crucially, it, in, it excludes the cost of imported energy. 
However, I'll say once again, it's meaningless without knowledge of this application. The formula is there. We don't expect anyone to read that or look at it in detail just now, but basically it is the capital cost, capitalized values of the operating costs normalized by the, um, the energy that you can, that you can expect to get out of the store over its lifetime. So those are the metrics we used. And now we need to talk about application cases. So the World Energy Council members were specifically interested in the use of energy storage in conjunction with the variable renewables, solar and wind. So we developed two application cases. The solar one is the simple to understand daily cycle, obviously, daily cycle. So the, your storage device is getting used 365 times a year. And we chose a discharge time of six hours. So the, the store gets charged up during the day and then overnight, probably, it is discharged for a period, a total period of six hours. The wind application case, we used a two-day cycle, so 183 times a year. And this is driven by weather cycles in what I've called mid-latitude maritime climate, but that really means, in our case, northern and western Europe which is where we have a, a, a fairly high wind penetration and a lot of interest in, in storage. So weather cycles are of the order of several days driven by maritime climate. Other parts of the world, the wind cycles will be very different. Um, daily cycles in some cases and others will be, will be very different still. And we chose a 24 hour discharge time. So time to talk about some results. These are the specific investment costs. Remember, this is the metric that is just based upon CapEx. It's not very useful, but I'm showing this slide to introduce the technologies that we looked at. They are along the uh, bottom line there. And just going from the left, PSP is pumped storage hydro. CAES is compressed air. And then the next four are all batteries, batteries, chemistries of some kind. Then there's thermochemical supercapacitors, FES is flywheel energy storage. Then there's sensible thermal and uh, latent thermal. And then PTG is power to gas. So power to gas producing hydrogen or power to gas producing synthetic natural gas, methane. Now these costs up the left-hand side in euros per kilowatt are um, current prices. We also did the same exercise with forecasts of prices to, to 2030. This was done by PwC using their own internal knowledge and uh, a, a fairly extensive review of published cost literature. However, as I've said before, specific investment cost SIC has limited usefulness. So we should look instead at the levelized cost of storage. So this is for the solar application case. Same kind of graph, the same technologies along the bottom. The, however, you see for each technology there are two bars. The blue is the is in is the situation now, effectively 2015, and the orange is the projection for 2030. And you can see the main conclusion here: substantial reductions in energy storage costs between now and 2030. The size of the bars represents partly uncertainty and partly also different applications and, and differences in technology. So there's clearly quite a few technologies that get down to quite relatively low. We have to remember that this is solar. And so for some of these, some of these technologies are completely unsuitable.
is not going to help um, domestic scale solar unless there is some concentrated program of aggregation of, of domestic scale uh, solar over wide areas. So the, the technologies that are more relevant here for small scale solar are the, the battery technologies, maybe also flywheels and power to gas. However, even taking the lowest costs there, let's look at uh, lead acid batteries, which are around of the order of, in 2030, the, of the order of 50 euros a megawatt hour, yeah, roughly $50 a megawatt hour. That is still, that cost is still equivalent to, roughly equivalent to current wholesale prices. So putting energy into the store and getting it back out again has doubled its price, which just goes to show that energy storage, although the costs are forecast to come down radically, still struggles to compete. If all you're interested in is something like energy arbitrage, and we'll come on in, in, in a few minutes onto the other value streams. You can see that some of the technologies are completely um, uneconomic here. Flywheels, for example, are very high cost or supercapacitors. That's because they are high power devices, only suitable for storing energy over a few seconds or minutes or hours. We move on to the wind application case. The axes are identical. Um, the lesson here is that the costs are higher. And that is because we're dealing with a two-day cycle rather than a one-day cycle. So you only get to value at your store uh, half as often. And if we moved instead to a three or four-day cycle, which it's arguable is actually more realistic of, of wind conditions in, in most areas with high wind penetration, um, these costs would become proportionately higher. So a lesson from this is that storage plus solar, if, if energy storage works with variable renewables, it's going to work with solar uh, far earlier than it works with wind. Okay, last slide, uh, some outcomes, recommendations. As I've said already, the application case is critical if you're trying to understand costs of storage. It's meaningless to talk about costs of storage without understanding the application case. The important metric actually is not the cost, it's the value, and value includes revenue. And so the discussion now moves on to what revenue can you get for your storage device? And here's a list of some things that are commonly used. We've talked already about energy arbitrage. So for uh, uh, an installation on the customer side of the meter, that would appear as time of use tariffs. For an installation on, on, on the um, operating as a merchant plant, that might appear as uh, arbitrage uh, depending upon wholesale spot prices. Minimizing peaks, again, for an installation on the uh, customer side of the meter, that would appear as reductions in maximum demand charges, but on the connected directly onto the network, perhaps owned by a utility, that would appear as uh, savings and grid reinforcement costs uh, for a wind farm it might appear as uh, a large wind farm might appear as reduction in connection costs for example frequency response which is actually turning out to be uh, in a couple of places turning out to be one of the most hopeful ancillary services that storage can provide the most valuable um, we here in the UK we are currently witnessing a tender by the national system operator for provision of fast frequency response and um, we will get the results in a couple of months but it's looking very much as though energy storage devices will um, scoop the pool there uh, there's also capacity value and there's many more 
possible value streams, depending very much on how the regulatory and commercial system in a particular uh, country is set up. So, as I said at the beginning, these value streams might have may have substantial uncertainty. And, uh, in fact, they do have substantial uncertainty. You don't get anything like the 10 or 15-year contracts that a wind farm or a PV farm might expect to get under traditional support mechanisms. These contracts might only be for six months or two years. And there's substantial competition from other sources like uh, demand response. Uh, so it's not at all clear what the prices for any of these services will be in uh, a few years' time. So the question really is, how do you stack these up to convince the, the, the people coming up with the money, the bankers um, or the, the investors? And that is where storage is currently at. That's the current situation of storage, trying to find business models that stack up enough sources of value with enough certainty to make the projects fly. Um, and with that, I think I'll close. If there are any specific questions of of, of, um, of information or clarity, we might want to take them now, but otherwise we can take more questions uh, at the end. Great, thanks, Paul. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Paul Gardner of DNVGL and Mike Hopkins of Ice Energy on the opportunities and challenges of energy storage. So far, we've covered the metrics commonly used for assessing the costs of energy storage, as well as the sources of value for these projects. In the next 20 minutes, Mike will highlight the technology behind ICE Energy and share the cost reduction potential of the units. Then we'll pose questions to our speakers for the Q&A session. I think, Paul, uh, we can hold off on questions until the end of the Q&A session. So, uh, Mike, why don't you uh, jump in? Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm actually uh, quite excited to be able to share with you what we're doing in the area of energy storage. Um, we're talking about a subject, uh, accelerating energy storage, that is, uh, I believe, literally changing the world that we're living in for the better. Um, storage is transforming the grid that we use from the world's least efficient system of delivering a commodity into what should be, I believe, in the near future, a hyper-efficient, highly reliable system, at the same time that storage is paving the way for what many are trying to do with renewables, which is to have renewables fully leave behind fossil fuels as a source of power. Speaking as someone in the, the storage industry, I think what's interesting, but it makes it a challenge, is that the storage technologies are developing so fast right now, and the costs are changing so quickly that it's very hard to stay current, even when you're inside the business. And not only hard to stay current, it makes forecasting where this is headed and how fast this transformation is going to occur very challenging. Anyways, that said, I, I will get into talking about what we do specifically. So our company, um, we, we began back in 2003, so as a distributed energy storage company, We've been around a relatively long time. We're currently headquartered uh, where I'm speaking from, Santa Barbara, California. Uh, we have been and continue to be quite California-centric just because of how good a market California is for energy storage and how it, uh, in many respects, I think, pioneered the creation of a real clear storage market uh, 
without the challenges that, uh, that Paul was discussing about finding value propositions. Here in California, we have an extremely well-defined, highly functioning, lucrative market for energy storage. Uh, our product, our ICE batteries, which we call ICE bears, they are uh, systems designed to store cooling, um, but what they're really intended to do is to provide the owner of them control over the use of electricity for cooling, specifically control of when electricity is used for cooling. And I'll explain that when I get into discussing how our product works. Most of our business, almost all of our business, has been selling our systems to electric utilities in large scale, megawatt scale. And the value proposition for the utilities is, I'd say, largely a capacity uh, value proposition, which is delivering to the utility control of their air conditioning load. Utilities generally would identify their air conditioning load as their most problematic load in the sense that it's, it's, it's the definition of peaky. It is what causes the peak. Um, and it's an uncontrolled load. It's one that's very, very difficult for a utility to get any kind of reliable, consistent control. With our product, with our thermal energy storage attached to the AC load, it actually does turn that air conditioning load into a completely controlled load, something that can be used by the utility as opposed to a problem that they have to mitigate. We've got 11 megawatts worth of our systems installed and operating um, as a, I guess, a sign of the, the change in the market, especially here in California. Those 11 megawatts, we took the first uh, 12 years of our history to sell. Uh, and in the last year and a half, we've sold 41 megawatts, which are just getting started to be installed. And our expectation based on contracts currently under negotiation is we'll triple that 41 megawatt number of uh, megawatts to be installed by the end of this calendar year. Although I said that our business has been utilities, a new market that is opening up for us, especially in California, but we're seeing it elsewhere now, is the retail market, the direct-to-consumer market, where the, the rapid reduction in the cost of storage and the move towards time-of-use rates is uh, opening up a market that hadn't really been lucrative, but now appears very attractive, just selling directly to um, homeowners, directly to commercial and industrial customers. The product that we've had around the longest, going on eight years now, we call it the Ice Bear 30. It's a storage device, uh, thermal storage device, designed to be physically connected to the most common type of commercial air conditioning, which is the so-called um, package air conditioning units, the direct expansion-based units that are, it's what you see on rooftops when you fly over usually. Um, and the larger the building, the more multiples of those that you see. We are usually operated by the owner of our systems, and all of our systems are networked so that they can be aggregated and controlled in real time. We're usually operated in a way where we are making ice, cooling, and storing it uh, during off-peak hours. That could be at night. Um, that could be when there's actually solar overgeneration during the middle of the day. And then we deliver our cooling uh, when it's peak. Uh, and when we deliver our cooling, what that specifically means is that the ice bear turns off the air conditioner that's connected to eliminating the electrical load, 
and then just melts the ice that it made during the off-peak hours, enabling it to provide all the cooling that the air conditioner would have been providing had it been operating. The system, as you would imagine, since our customers have been utilities, is optimized for utility ownership. That's why a lot of investment has been made by us in the control systems and making it a robust 20-year asset like other grid assets. Um, it's physically located behind the meter, actually behind the air conditioner. Um, and as I mentioned, fully dispatchable and controlled in real time. Um, it is typically used to do deal with the, the, the traditional peak, the kind of middle of the day peak. And that takes advantage of a cool nighttime temperature when making the ice. But most recently, we've begun deploying it in a way to deal with the duck curve, where we're making ice at night, uh, displacing the AC load in the morning before there's much solar. We're recharging the ice bears with solar during the, uh, the dip in the duck curve, especially where there's actual overgeneration. And then as the curve starts to rise again, as solar dissipates, we discharge for a second time. And that's our kind of sun on ice product. The way it works, uh, this is just a, a graphic on this slide of uh, being physically connected to the air conditioner, making the ice uh, whenever you want to, uh, and then turning off the air conditioner and using that ice to provide the cooling the air conditioner would have provided without the use of a compressor that's delivering the, the cooling. Um, it's a simple system. And uh, if any engineer is looking at it, they're going to recognize right away that um, it has a lot in common with an air conditioner. It's just we're not cooling air, we're creating ice. Many of the parts are in common. The real magic behind it is how we make ice and melt ice efficiently and cost-effectively. It's certainly not uh, the fact that we can make and melt ice, but it's how we do that cost-effectively and efficiently. And that's where we have 15 patents is all around that making and melting of ice in a highly cost-effective way. There's a picture of the ice bears here on this slide. The ice bears are on the left, the air conditioners are on the right, which I guess just shows you that uh, our, our product is often mistaken for air conditioners, and that's deliberate. Our objective is when our systems are installed, they're intended to disappear. Uh, they're not intended to be obtrusive. They're intended to just fit right in. We have a new product, um, first new product really since we began the product uh, banner business with the Ice Bear 30. It's called the Ice Bear 20, but it's a residential system. Uh, it is based on the Ice Bear 30, uh, and so in a lot of respects, it's a just a downsized version of the commercial unit uh, because it's sized for houses instead of commercial buildings. But its big differentiator is that it does not add on to an air conditioner, it completely replaces the air conditioner. And that is a, a technological breakthrough that we had with the residential unit. Based on what we've been doing with it since we unveiled it in February, we now expect that it will actually quickly overtake our commercial unit in terms of sales. We've already pre-sold uh, the product to National Grid for a project in uh, the island of Nantucket to eliminate the need for a new transmission line by controlling the AC load with these systems. We've also been selected as the cooling system for a new housing development in Abu Dhabi, uh, where it's just being compared to traditional AC units 
and found to be more efficient, environmentally better, um, and provides the country uh, of quite a significant amount of storage, in that case up to about 80 megawatts. There's a little picture here of what it looks like, um, and this system, the iSpare 20, is replacing the outdoor condensing unit. So if you think of the outdoor condensing unit of a house that has a central air conditioning system, that would be removed and this system would, uh, would replace it. The attributes of an ICE battery compared to, and this is largely a comparison to lithium ion, which we're most commonly compared to. I'll touch on the attributes, but I'd preface it by saying, I don't actually look at um, our ICE batteries as competitive with lithium ion batteries as much as we are complementary to lithium ion batteries and multiple other types of storage that I think Paul did a good job of, of canvassing. If storage is going to do what I believe it does, it's going to do, and I strongly believe that, is that you're going to see multiple specialized types of energy storage, each of which is optimized and the best at what it does, covering the whole range of uh, long durations, short durations, big power, short power, thermal, electric, and everything in between, and probably things that haven't even come to market yet. But we'll need that diversity of storage if it's truly going to be a replacement for fossil fuel, enabling renewables, and if it's truly going to allow us to dramatically downsize the grid so that it's optimized for the average load instead of having to be so overbuilt for the peak. But I believe we're clearly getting there. Now, if I just touch on ours, what's special about ours? Well, it's the lowest cost. It's certainly the lowest cost of, of any distributed energy storage out there today. To give you a sense of uh, how things are changing, how quickly they're changing, when we look at our all-in turnkey cost, which is how we sell it to utilities, Two years ago, our all-in turnkey cost, which was making it, delivering the units, finding the sites, securing the sites, installing the units, uh, and then turning it over to the utility. Our all-in cost, including a reasonable margin, was about 3,600 a kilowatt. Last year, it was 1,800. This year, it's 1,200. And at 1,200, we're competing and beating out gas peaking power plants, which is something I don't think anybody would have expected happening anytime soon, let alone today. But today we're able to beat out gas-fired peaking power plants head to head. We're a highly reliable uh, type of energy storage. This is largely because we're very simple. We're making and melting ice and it's why we've got over 98% availability over our currently 33. It actually yesterday went up to 34 million operating hours. Environmentally, very good. We're very good, like all storage is good in terms of shifting load to better times uh, and enabling renewables. But our actual storage technology itself is environmentally benign. There's no chemicals. It's literally just tap water filled up once and all our parts are recyclable. We've got a 20-year life, again, having to do with the simplicity, no degradation. That has to do with the fact that it's just making and melting ice. That's why there's no degradation. Very quick to deploy. Uh, they're small, simple, look like uh, common rooftop air conditioners, and they're installed the same way by the same people. 
no real permitting, certainly no environmental permitting. Only permitting is a over-the-counter building permit, same one you'd get for an air conditioner. And hyper-efficient. Uh, we have 85% round-trip efficiency, but if the units are operated in, I'll call it the conventional way, which is you make the ice when it's better to make it, when it's cooler out, you're going to get about a 15% efficiency gain, which completely offsets the 15% energy loss of the storage, making it net neutral uh, for the person that's got them on their roof. An example project, uh, and this I think Olga touched on in the introduction, is we the biggest contract we've got to date, although we'll be announcing a bigger one shortly, the biggest one we've got to date is a 25.6 megawatt contract with Southern California Edison. It's in the form of a 20-year PPA, so a service, rather than buying the assets, they're getting a 20-year service. I think it's absolutely the way of the future. It's the form of contract that we're seeing for storage in scale increasingly. The entire project will be done in one area of Southern California, Orange County. It'll be done over a four-year period in a pretty steady-state deployment. The purpose of it, which I think is interesting, is really a 100% capacity value proposition. It replaces the need for a new substation and does it more cost-effectively than a substation. Um, it has its challenges, which is scale. This project is uh, at least five times the size of any project we've done previously. The benefits we have is we have a great manufacturing partner. We don't do our manufacturing. It's done by a third party in New York, Mercury Corporation. Um, they've got the capacity there to manufacture 10 megawatts of ice bears per month. So it's not difficult to get these units manufactured for us. Installation, again, we're fortunate. Installation, as I touched on, is done by local HVAC contractors. Uh, there's a lot of them out there and they're easy to train. It takes about three hours to train an HVAC contractor how to uh, install an ice bear. Same idea with maintenance, same people that install them, maintain them. The real challenge I'd say with scaling for us is site acquisition. It's a challenge that we've overcome in the thousand units and the about 300 and some buildings that we've secured in our history, so we know how to do it. But if you wanted to really talk about, is there a real challenge to scale for us? The only challenge, which we find quite manageable, but is the challenge, is site acquisition. Especially when storage is not as familiar to people as you'd like it to be. Things are getting better, though. I probably credit Tesla uh, to a large degree that when you talk today to commercial and industrial customers and homeowners about storage, you don't have to explain What's storage and what does it do? And just a few years ago, you actually did. Uh, if you talk to commercial industrial customers about having storage on their roof, it's not something anybody was contemplating. They were thinking about LED lighting, energy efficiency measures, those kinds of things. Now storage is in the common language and people think about it, which has made site acquisition much, much easier. You don't have to tell someone that storage is a good thing you just have to tell them why your type of storage is a good thing. Last thing I'm gonna to touch on is just what are we doing in terms of product innovation and cost reduction. Um, we have a large cost advantage over other types of distributed energy storage, which we certainly intend and have solid plans to maintain and actually build on that cost advantage. We're gonna be dropping our cost by about 50% uh, over the next five years. 
we actually have some, I'd say, more cutting edge work, not just you know the economies of scale, better parts, but we're doing some serious R&D, which is enabling us to quite dramatically increase the capacity of our systems with almost no increase in their form factor and minimal cost. That's the most dramatic work we're doing, which may really shift the playing field in terms of cost. Uh, also in product innovation, we're building off of this first residential product, which was really intended and is being sold mostly to utilities. We're working on a purely consumer version of it. We call it the Ice Cub. It'll be a small, high-tech, um, consumer-optimized product uh, and a whole new way of cooling the home. And that's a project that we're doing not on our own, but working with NRG and a, a Danish company called Danfoss. Our ultimate goal is we really think that uh, in the not-too-distant future, our way of incorporating ice cooling into cooling systems is something that's going to make its way into mainstream cooling systems so that it will end up being uh, a, a pretty much a ubiquitous type technology and that's the long-term vision and with that i think i'll call it good for now and look forward to any questions Great, thank you so much. So we wanted to start with a few clarifying questions. Uh, we had one for Paul come in, uh, and it was asking, uh, why does the longer storage cycle for wind versus solar drive up costs? Yeah, that's it's fairly simple. It 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 doesn't certainly doesn't drive up the the capital costs. It just means that you're getting. Uh, the the you're you're shifting less energy through your energy storage device in a year. You're using your energy storage device less frequently, so there's less energy being stored and discharged in a year. And so, when you normalise the cost by energy by megawatt hours, the, the 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 you're dividing the cost by a smaller number, and so you get a higher cost per per megawatt hour. Got it. Thank you. And Mike, could you elaborate on how the local capacity resource contracts that you won from SCE in their round one RFOs work in practice? So is the assumption that you can sell enough ice bears or have enough in backlog to ensure the committed capacity is in place by the dates that they require? And if the ice bears are unable to demonstrate available capacity, how would you backfill the capacity commitments? Sure. So the the SCE contracts uh, for us, and I believe for the other um, capacity resources that they acquired, uh, all have some common themes. Uh, one of them is what I mentioned, that they're, they're not buying the asset, they wanted to buy capacity under service agreements. In our case, the basic way that that's being done is they want a fixed amount of capacity, which is in our case 25.6 megawatts, they want that installed and uh, in place and maintained in place for 20 years, starting where well, we're expecting the whole project to kick off in the next few months. And then our capacity, which will be in the form of installed ice bear units, will be coming online and is supposed to come in line in kind of fixed quarterly increments of about two megawatts every quarter. So we're set up as we are, by the way, in pretty much all of our utility programs, to follow a process that has us um, get ice bears manufactured and put into inventory, shipped into our warehouse, into the relevant area, 
We do a site acquisition program before we bring any of those ice bear units out where we start to fill up a backlog of sites that are qualified, which means the, there's, there's room, there's the right air conditioners, the customer, the utility customer signs up for the program. And uh, with that in place, we begin the installation process and we schedule it so that they come online in a, in a constant flow, which we have all scheduled. Um, the test of whether, well, the test of whether we've installed it is pretty simple. The ice bear is installed, turned on, and the utility can see that it's there and functioning. There's a test that you run. The test of whether it's working, meaning the capacity is there, in our case, is really simple. They're, they're not measuring electricity or load drop. What they're measuring is, and what they've really purchased in our case is, they want a defined electrical load, which is the electrical load associated with the air conditioning in Orange County. They want that under their control. And the test of whether it's under their control is whether the air conditioners are turned off when they want it off. Now, behind the scenes, what's happening is we're not only turning off the air conditioners when we're told to, but we're substituting to the building the cooling that those air conditioners would have provided the building. The utility, though, isn't really concerned about that. I mean, they care about their customers, but from a capacity point of view, from a maintaining the grid perspective, they care about one thing, and that's they know there's an air conditioning load. They know what that load looks like. They want to be able to see that load, and they want to see that load disappear on demand, and that's what we do. Um, in terms of a, a, a backup plan, um, you know, we, we have to deliver that capacity. We have to deliver that ability to turn off the air conditioners. We've been doing this for 12 years. We've never had a case of not delivering the capacity. Uh, so we don't, we're not set up to have like alternative ways of controlling AC load. We do it the way we do it because it's a way that's never failed and it's reliable. Um, where we do have an outage, the outage is an outage of an individual ice bear unit, uh, not the whole fleet of ice bear units. We've never had a systematic issue. So if you think about our SC project, it's going to involve 1,800 ice bear units. The contract uh, allows for there to be up to a 25% loss of capacity um, or, or some number like that, some large number. Um, if we have an outage, it's going to be some small fraction of 1%, and it's going to be very temporary because every one of our units is monitored in real time. And in almost all cases, we know there's a problem way before the there's an actual malfunction. Got it. Thank you. Uh, Paul, our audience is interested in hearing more about how you see the results being applied. Uh, what companies have so far developed the best business case using the various value streams? And uh, in your opinion, what regions in the US would have uh, the best regulatory and business environment for energy storage deployment? Well, those are difficult questions because, as, as I hope was apparent in the presentation, uh, and and also from from Mike's, uh, the what we're seeing is the development of a very large number of niches. Uh, energy storage, 
I agree entirely with Mike. Energy storage will will in in five years' time we'll not be talking about energy storage as as a subject. There'll be ten or twenty or fifty energy storage applications, each one of which will be very different. So, domestic batteries for domestic PV, for example, will be an entirely different uh, application niche from, for example, dealing with the air conditioning load. So, the qu the questions. Those questions that have been asked actually need to be answered in the context of specific locations. Uh, I think the the if if we, if we look at the first question about what what companies are what what are companies doing? You're seeing well certainly domestic PV uh, batteries. So there are twenty thousand domestic uh, battery installations in Germany to deal with PV alone. There's something like the same number in the US, uh, maybe slightly less. And we can see the same kind of thing happening in Japan, maybe Korea, and anywhere else where there's a large amount of PV is coming and the regulatory background and the tariff structure perm permits this to happen. So that's one application. I mentioned also the frequency response application, which seems to provide quite a lot of value to utilities. Uh, Mike mentioned the um, well, certainly the air conditioning issue, but Mike also mentioned the um, uh, the avoidance or deferral of network reinforcement in the case of Nantucket. Uh, Nantucket being a very good example. Uh, so that those are those are specific cases where if you can show you can defer network reinforcement or avoid it, you you can save a very large amount of money with only a few megawatts of storage. So. I'm afraid I can't give simple answers to those to, the, to both those questions. We, we are looking at a very very complex patchwork of areas, um, geographical areas, and also regulatory areas, commercial areas, where different types of storage will emerge. So uh, another way of looking at it is why is this all happening now? If there's all if there's all these different niches, why are they all suddenly emerging at the same time? Um, Good philosophical question. Partly, I agree with the, agree with Mike on the Tesla effect. Uh, it's now something that people talk about. Also, people now expect technology costs to fall rapidly. The experience of PV, the experience of mobile phones, people expect that new technology that's small, it's not large utility scale stuff, it's not power, power stations, stuff that's relatively small, commercial, domestic, they expect that. Uh, rapid reduction in cost now. They may be disappointed, but that's what they're expecting. So something that's marginal or not quite possible now, provided it's interesting, people kind of expect it to become economic in the fairly near future. So those kind of those kind of factors, I think, are, are, are leading to this. We have to be careful that it doesn't become hype or froth, um, but it's leading to this strong interest and which enforces a new mindset on utilities and on regulators. Uh, and that is why I think we're seeing so much interest in so many areas just now. Great, thank you. Um, we have a, a question that I think both of you uh, would be uh, interested in answering. Um, what do you see, what, what do you foresee will be the balance or the battle between storage improvements versus microgrid expansion? Uh, Mike, do you wanna take a stab at that? Sure. I, I would not see it as a battle. I would see microgrids as another great application of storage. In fact, microgrids, I think, are almost completely dependent upon there being storage. Uh, 
Um, and the more cost-effective and reliable storage, the more realistic microgrids are. There's the, the two cases I've seen of microgrid development is where it's necessary, <laughs> where the grid has not got to certain parts of a region, but you want energy, you want power in a, in a remote location. So the only way to do it is a microgrid, um, your own self-contained grid. And in that case, you need some form of storage unless you want to live in a you know, pretty backward kind of way where you just uh, uh, have power during the day and get by without power at night. The other, so that, that's 100% complementary. The other place I've seen microgrids is more for grid optimization. So it's part of the grid, but within the grid, there's a microgrid. And there are specific reasons as to why that microgrid is beneficial, where they want to do some special type. It might be a highly intensive renewable penetration in an area. You might want it for resiliency, where this microgrid has the ability to function completely separate from the grid in the event of a catastrophic, catastrophic event. Same scenario, though. You need, um, you need energy storage of some kind just to make that work in a you know, comfortable way. And then the more efficient, the more cost-effective the storage, the more these microgrids make sense and the more prevalent they would be. Which, by the way, I would certainly see microgrids as both uh, a good way of getting power into remote regions and as part of a new, much more efficient, downsized, uh, efficient and reliable grid. But that only happens with cost-effective reliable storage. Paul, did you have any thoughts on that? Yes, a couple of things to add to that. Uh, there was a very interesting example that um, I haven't haven't actually visited myself, but was um, in uh, newspapers fairly recently in South Australia, where there was a new housing development, which was only about 200 yards from an existing electricity distribution network, and yet it was cheaper to install PV and storage and a small diesel generator for that housing development. It was cheaper to do that than it was to pay the connection charges for 200 meters of distribution cable. And so that's a microgrid. And uh, uh, there's very good arguments that say that, that that decision was made because of some very strange charging policies on, on the part of the network operator. But still, it's, it's, very, it's indicative of how close storage plus PV in particular has come to, to, uh, to standard grid practices. The other thing I would, I, I would add is that the, the question asked about competition. Uh, I think the competition for most forms of storage is, apart from other forms of storage, is demand response. And it's possible to, to, to view Mike's product effectively as demand response um, to, to some extent. Uh, but other forms of demand response uh, can also compete with storage, in particular here in, in northern latitudes here in, in the UK, for example, in northern Europe, um, very large heating loads. Um, but they they don't, just like the air conditioning, they, they have time constants of several hours. And so there's a very large, potentially a very large controllable load, um, which, which 
will complete di compete directly with storage. As soon as markets e exist for storage in these circumstances, as long as they don't actually, as long as they're technology agnostic, as long as they don't actually see storage on them, very strong competition for storage in those markets will come from demand response, aggregated demand response. Great, thank you. We've had a few questions come in about the role of thermal storage. Uh, Mike, you touched on ice bears pairing with solar. Could you speak to applications with wind? Sure. Um, well, there's a natural pairing for us with wind. We, I, I explained how we can and actually are now pairing with solar. Um, wind is, is probably the more natural pairing for us. Uh, just because the most efficient way, if you're a cooling form of thermal energy storage, the most efficient way to do it is to be making your cooling at night um, because it's cooler at night. And wind is almost always uh, more prevalent at night than it is during the day. So we're a natural pairing with wind. Uh, now, we haven't actually done that physically. It's something that we've looked at. I think it's more a case of it's effectively what's happening. We have ice bears that are working um, in, the, in the state of California right now, up and down the state, um, about 11 megawatts. Most of them are drawing electricity from the grid generally at night. That's when they're making their eyes. Most of the units are operating that way. And there is a large wind load in California at night, most of which unfortunately, or a lot of which unfortunately, is a wasted load. It's actually creating just a surplus amount of electricity on the grid that has to be dumped. And we're a productive use of that. Um, and I'd say thermal energy storage generally is going to be both with wind and with solar, depending on whether you're heating or cooling or you can be both. Um, it's a, a very efficient, as we get more and more of, of thermal energy storage on the grid, it's a highly efficient way of making use of renewables that otherwise would be wasted. And that's kind of two of the issues with renewables. One is the intermittency, where all forms of storage can make use of it um, and fill in for the intermittency. And then the other one is um, taking advantage of the time of day to make your form of thermal energy storage, your, for either your cooling or heating, making it at the best possible time at a time that's the most complementary with either solar or wind. Got it, thank you. Paul, uh, does your analysis change if the storage is on the utility scale and on the utility side of the meter? And uh, does it effectively replace peak load? The analysis doesn't change because we looked at, at costs and, and and when we looked at value, we, we, we only dealt with value in uh, qualitative terms, so we we didn't in this study look at the quantitative value, which would require deciding at what point on the network you've put your store. So, so we we haven't we haven't looked at, at that in this work. There are several studies, many studies out there that do look at the value of storage, but they are all very specific in their location, which you have to be in order to produce any useful results when it comes to. Uh, specific value. Um, to The issue of which side of the meter the store goes is really, to my mind, a scale, primarily a scale issue. 
different storage technologies are optimum at different physical scales, kilowatts, megawatts. And that tends to determine where each will find its niche. There are um, utilities, although they are often slow and conservative, when they do make their mind up, they can install as we've just heard from Mike, they can go ahead with project, uh, projects with tens of megawatts and pretty soon, I think, hundreds and thousands of megawatts. Uh, whereas if you are dealing with um, domestic customers, small commercial, you're only ever dealing with individual installations of, of a few kilowatts. So uh, that question really depends upon um, there are different different technologies are, different, are suited for different points on the network, and there's an additional complication, of course, which is the regulatory framework. So, if a technology was useful for uh, electricity network operators, for example, peaking ba battery storage to be used to remove the peak from a substation to uh, avoid the need to build a new city centre substation, for example, uh, that could well be very economic, but in many countries, uh, network operators are not allowed to, to, to own storage. They're not, they're not allowed to own anything that could effectively interfere with the electricity trading market. They're not allowed to own generation, they're not allowed to own storage. So those kind of factors are market barriers that make no sense, and they will eventually be removed, but it's not gonna happen easily, that requires concerted action and it will have to be, my experience, previous experience renewal shows that um, it can take a long, long time for, for ideas and concepts that are proven to be acceptable in, in one country. It can be, take a long, long time for regulators and utilities to accept that that can also be done in another country. So to some extent, for large scale storage, tens of megawatts so on, on the network side of the meter, it's regulatory barriers that are probably the 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 ones that will delay things the longest. Thank you, Paul. Well, we're out of time for today. We want to thank the Blueprint audience for all your questions. We have many more questions than we can answer during our time today. So we'll forward the remaining questions to our speakers. With that, we'd like to conclude today's talk on accelerating energy storage deployment. Paul, Mike, thank you for joining us today. Uh, to view, thank you. To view a recording of this webinar, please visit the Events tab on the Yale Center for Business and Environment website, or access the recording through the Yale iTunes University podcast. Be sure to register for our next webinar on April 12th for a discussion on the Green Bank Network with representatives from the Green Banks of New York, Connecticut, and the UK. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, this is Olga Kachuk from the Yale Center for Business and the Environment.